Welcome to today's edition of the Baseball America College Podcast. I'm Teddy Cahill. Joining me, as always, is my colleague, Joe Healy, and we are here to recap week 10 of college baseball. It was a fun weekend around the country, not as wild as last week when uh, there were uh, half of the top 25, uh, half the top 25 teams lost a series this weekend, a little more order. And uh, you know what, Joe, I think we'll take it. I uh, made making a top 25 much easier and it'll make projecting a field of 64 much easier this week. But anyway, we're going to get into uh, a couple of big series that had uh, the top two teams in the conference going at it. TCU beats Oklahoma state to, uh, to leave Stillwater in first place in the big 12. That was probably the weekend's most notable result. Wofford uh, won a series at Mercer and is in first place in the SoCon uh, Texas A&M upset Arkansas. Uh, that's a, a big top five series win for AM and don't look now, but the Aggies are pretty hot. Uh, and we'll get into some other stuff from the ACC, the Pac-12, the Big Ten, a lot to get to uh, here on the Baseball America College podcast, Joe. It, it was, like I said, not not quite as busy of a weekend, just in terms of the the loudness, the upsets or whatever, but but still a quite a fun weekend of college baseball. Yeah, for sure. And I think these weekends are a nice change of pace. I think that's the key is you need, it takes all kinds and and you need different kinds of weekends to continue to make the season interesting because as fun as chaos weekends can be when you've get nothing but chaos weekends, they kind of cease to lose their novelty first off. And second of all, it kind of creates the situation that, that frankly, you know, you and I and anyone else who, who follows college baseball has probably been feeling for the last month or so, which is that, you know, is anybody but Tennessee actually any good? And we still don't always have all of those answers. But what the, a weekend like this does, where you've got a good number of teams kind of consolidating their position and taking care of business and stuff, is it it does kind of firm up the rankings a little bit and make us a little more confident in at least some subset of teams. Whereas I think, you know, we went out came out of last week and went into this weekend just being generally unsure of 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 what's what, just because we'd had really six or eight weeks of chaos leading up to it. Joe, I don't mean to untrack us three minutes into the podcast, um, but I am, as I do, watching a baseball game while we record this from the weekend, and it's Georgia and Alabama, and in the Georgia dugout, I just saw somebody is holding, you know, as as some college teams do, they have like a little stuffed animal that they carry around for, you know, whatever reason, various teams have various meaning for, for those, and it looks like Georgia has the Bucky's mascot. And uh, I know that's very relevant to your interest. I don't know anything about this. I did a quick Google search and came up with nothing. So I'm going to have to dig on this, but it looks like Georgia has adopted Bucky's. And so I'm prepared now to crown Georgia a national champion, but B uh, like perpetual champion of, I don't know, Southeastern to Texas. Like, I, I, don't, I don't know what geographic area we're going to declare them like perpetual champion of, but th- this is, this is a huge development. It is like this season actually is a wrap. So I guess that's it for us. Uh, thanks for listening as always. And we'll, we'll see you in February. Yeah. It's uh Bucky's by the way, just um, seems kind of rapidly expanding. I, I saw, I passed at least one, maybe two, although maybe it's just that I saw the same location coming and going and I just have conflated those things. But on the way to, on the drive out to Knoxville a couple weekends ago, I saw they were building a, a Bucky's out in, I think it was East Tennessee, um, I have also seen 
I saw a couple on a drive. I drove to, for, for a family member's wedding down to the Southeast. Like we drove through South Carolina into Georgia and passed a couple of locations that were currently being built for Bucky's. And so, um, very quickly, the uh, the seems like the entire SEC footprint is going to have access to Bucky's, which is good for the for for the people. Like I am, I am all for that. Um, but there's of course that tricky thing where it's like you know you you want your special thing that is special to you to only remain special to you in, in some parts. So I I'm trying not to be selfish about this though because uh, the the people need Bucky's. I mean let's be let's be honest. That's okay, Joe. We we all know you were early to Bucky's. You, you, uh, that's right. you, you knew their first album. It's okay. Well, oh, that's you, right. That's you right. had the mixtape. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. I bought it out of the trunk of someone's car, you know, like I, <laughs> I knew it, I knew it back then. Um, yeah, back the, the halcyon days of when, uh, you know, Bucky's was just that one truck stop out there on I 10, uh, you know, out uh, leaving Houston, headed out towards San Antonio. Um, that was, that was, that was the one I knew of. And that was, it wasn't the original, I'm sure, but like, it was just the one that was most relevant to me. And that was, a, a special, a special trip. And now they just, you know, they got them in East Tennessee and, and everywhere else. And so, but you're, but you're right. I should, I should just, um, you know, I, I, I'll, I'll, I'll just take solace in the fact that I was, uh, I discovered them early. All right. So speaking of Bucky's, let's, uh, let's go to Oklahoma. I think, uh, I think they probably have Bucky's there. Anyway, uh, <laughs> TCU and Oklahoma State met this weekend in Stillwater. Big 12, uh, first place in the Big 12 was on the line going in. Oklahoma State held a slim edge. I think it was a half game edge on TCU coming into the, the weekend. Uh, as it stands now, TCU is in first place. They won this series. Oklahoma State won uh, on Friday night. In rather convincing fashion, Justin Campbell was very good. They scored a bunch of runs on Riley Cornelio. It was the TCU Aces' worst start of, of the year. Oklahoma State got to him in a way that um, nobody had to this point. They scored eight runs on him and knocked him out on the fourth inning. Um, but from there, TCU bounced back in a, in a really big way. Uh, they won on Saturday, 7-6, to six, held off a, an Oklahoma State comeback in that game. And then they came back and did it again uh, on Sunday. Oh, that was the seven to six game. Excuse me. It was six to four on Saturday. In both cases, though, Oklahoma State had a chance late. TCU's bullpen uh, was great in those two wins, holds them off. And TCU comes away, uh, like I said, in first place in the Big 12. And over the last two weeks now, TCU is five and one against Texas Tech and Oklahoma State. That is pretty darn good. That is yes, and it, I mean this weekend not only puts them in good position um, within the Big Twelve standings for right now, but they've got kind of we've talked about it a little bit. They've got a weird schedule situation where there are four weekends left. Only two of them are Big Twelve weekends. They've got Florida State this coming weekend, fun little series, and then they have Santa Clara to end the season. So they only have Oklahoma and KU left, and so it's like kind of like don't look now. I mean Oklahoma is going to be tricky. Oklahoma is taking care of business against the teams that should take care of seems to be playing a little better baseball these days. So th I think that's going to be tricky, but TCU, if they're as good as, as we think they are right now, should, should win both of those series and, and, you know, maybe should be looking at five and one with the way Kansas is reeling right now. Um, so it's going to take someone doing something kind of impressive to catch up to them, just given what, um, given what it's going to be able to put in the clubhouse, given the schedule it has in front of them. 
Uh, before before you get into more about TCU, I will say right now, Oklahoma State still controls its own destiny. They are ahead of TCU in the loss column because they still have nine games left versus TCU having six left. So if Oklahoma State just wins out, if only they just went out, uh, they would win the Big 12 regardless of, of anything TCU can do. Uh, but Oklahoma State has a much tougher road. They still like they go to Texas this weekend and they still also have Texas Tech. So uh, it's going to be a tight run in, I think. But this weekend is is was huge for for TCU to leave in first place, put that pressure on Oklahoma State. And now this coming weekend is massive for the Cowboys because they have to get back on track uh, against the Longhorns. Otherwise, yeah, TCU is going to really be in the driver's seat. Cleaning up uh, Bucky's information, it does not appear that uh, Oklahoma, unfortunately, has um, Bucky's location. So that's uh, a shame, at least as far as, as what I'm looking at here. However, here are some upcoming locations. So heads up if you are uh, if you are any in any of these locations. Uh, Richmond, Kentucky, which that's like that's in deep eastern Kentucky. I've passed through Richmond, Kentucky. Uh, Florence, South Carolina, Crossville, Tennessee, which is one of the ones I passed in Tennessee, I believe. Athens, Alabama. Auburn, Alabama, War Eagle, uh, Sevierville, Tennessee, which I probably also passed that one um, on 40 headed out towards Knoxville, Smith's Grove, Kentucky, don't know where that is, Hillsborough, Texas, Harrison County, Mississippi, and Anderson, South Carolina, and Anderson is in the uh, kind of northern part of the state of South Carolina. That's probably one of the ones I passed on the drive down in Georgia. Um, so there, there's some heads up there for some new locations Uh for Bucky's that that will conclude the Bucky's segment for uh, today, but I cannot guarantee that it concludes Bucky's talk for the rest of the season. I, uh, I mean, like I do intend to follow up with this, this Georgia Bucky's situation. We'll, we'll, we'll come back with more answers. Yeah. I mean, I am also going to the big 12 tournament in Dallas and I don't know, or Arlington. I don't know like how convenient Bucky's locations would be to there, but th- so I, you know, th- there could be a Bucky situation later in the season. So we definitely reserve <laughs> the right to come back to this topic later in the season. Um, the point you made about TCU's bullpen is a good one. That was kind of a, a key here. Uh, it kind of flexed its muscle. It's a little bit of a, I would say weird, but their bullpen's a little different than what you're used to seeing with teams that have good bullpens. Cause especially in today's modern game, you, at least I am kind of used to seeing these pitchers who are these, you know, innings eaters who are two, three inning relievers. And they do a little differently with kind of short relievers, whether it's, you know, river writings or Augie Milbauer or guys like that. Um, so that, but that has, that was a key for them this weekend. And I think it could get even stronger. Austin Krobe returned on Sunday. He's been out since March, you know, remains to be seen what his role is, but the bullpen gets stronger either way, whether you decide to, Hey, let's, let's move him kind of slowly because Marcelo Perez has been pretty decent in his starts. So we bring him back slowly. Let's use him in the bullpen. Cause his stuff does play up to the point where he could be a good bullpen arm. I mean, his, couple of innings against Oklahoma state on Sunday were at times pretty electric and his stuff looked good. So I think that's a tempting thing to do. If you want to do it like Tennessee did with blade Tidwell, where you bring him back slowly over a few weeks, or, you know, you put him back in the rotation, then boom, you've got Marcelo Perez as that type of multi-inning reliever in the bullpen. So either way, I think that's an area where they could get even stronger as the season goes on. I think that's an interesting conversation. Like there is no, like last year there were Kevin cops and Landon Sims that were both like, two, three, four, seven innings if you're Kevin Cops relievers. And I just don't see a ton of those this year. It seems to be more of a traditional, uh, like when we start looking at All-Americans, I think they're a lot more traditional 
relievers out there. Something that I'm definitely not going to have time to dig into over the next month, but I, I do kind of want to clean that up in the postseason or in the offseason. Like why I, you know, it, it would have seemed that what Sims and cops did last year was kind of like the start of something. And instead it doesn't seem like that's taken off. So maybe guys like that are rarer than we, when we realized or, or whatever, but anyway, uh, yeah, TCU uh, getting Crow back is maybe the biggest development like in the long run. Yeah. Winning the series was massive, but getting Crow back. I mean, this is a guy that started the the year in their rotation. Um, and yeah, Marcelo Perez has been really good over the last couple of weeks, but you know, Brett Walker only went two innings on Sunday. Um, you know, so whether, however they choose to do this, getting an arm like Crow back into, into that mix uh, feels like a really big deal. I also thought this was interesting, Joe, that River Ridings, we talked about him on the preview podcast, how he had 10 saves. Um, he didn't save either one of these games. He came in in, in late inning situations uh, in both of their wins, but it wound up being uh, not River Ridings that, that got the saves, um, but Garrett Wright uh, picked up his first two saves of, of the season. So uh, he, he struck out three of the four batters he faced and in, in on Saturday, he got the final out, and on Sunday, he got the final two outs, or maybe reverse those. Uh, but it was it was a little interesting. Uh, but Kirk Sarlus mixed and matched in that bullpen, and you know they they combined for nine and two thirds innings over the the two wins over the two days, uh, just two runs and just one earned run in uh, in nine and two thirds innings from the bullpen. So, I mean, that, that is really impressive against an offense of Oklahoma state's caliber and to do it on the road, uh, really significant. So TCU in a very advantageous position right now, uh, their RPI is still a touch low for hosting, uh, this weekend, this coming weekend against Florida state, uh, it gives them another opportunity to really make some hay on that RPI front. If they actually do win the big 12, and still maintain an RPI like around 25. I don't, I genuinely don't know what, what, what that would do in, in terms of a hosting race. But I think that this weekend, just going and playing on the road at Florida state, which is still in the top 20 in RPI should, should be a nice, provide a nice bump for uh, for TCU. If you're looking at the hosting race. Uh, meanwhile, Joe, Oklahoma state got to feel like this was a missed opportunity after winning 13 to two on Friday. Uh, that they don't get a series win here uh, and that they let the big 12 title race slip, uh, you know, not slip away again. Like I said, they, they still control their own destiny, but they, they had the opportunity to, you know, really consolidate their position at the top of the conference. And ultimately they, uh, they came up just short. Yeah. And I mean, they had that blowout on Friday and it kind of not only, was just an emphatic start to the series. And you kind of thought, okay, like this is, you know, Oklahoma state's really going to announce themselves as, you know, what the, the, the rankings and what the big 12 standing show, which is this, this is the class, of the big 12. And also answer the question of, you know, I, when we kind of wondered aloud, it was, well, I guess it was more just me, but you were just responding, but on the podcast, the preview podcast, like what is Oklahoma state's offense? Like, you know, it, I'm not, Looking at the numbers, I'm just not exactly sure, but the, the physicality of their offense really shined through on Friday. And so I thought, okay, here, we, you know, here we go. Like maybe this is 2019 Oklahoma State where it's like the batting averages aren't great, but there's a lot of power here and a lot of physicality. And, and maybe that's what we're looking at here. Um, it wasn't really the case over the last couple of days. 
And, you know, you, the, the Sunday games so often devolve into these kind of scraps, these little fights where, you know, the, the starters go relatively short, although Bryce Osmond did give Oklahoma State six, but TCU hit him a little bit in those six, too. It was not an easy six. And, you know, TCU's starter with Brett Walker went short. And in those kind of scraps, like those are just 50 50 games. And, you know, you, some teams seem particularly good at winning those types of games, and some teams don't seem particularly good at them. But either way, you just have to kind of find ways. And TCU found a way, and Oklahoma State didn't. And I thought it was a nice, kind of uh, full circle moment for TCU because you may remember a few weeks ago against in that Texas series talking about how, Hey, you know, when, when your Sunday guy is Brett Walker and he's a guy who's just going to have a lot of contact against him, like you're going to have to be prepared to win games like this. And they didn't do it against Texas. They did do it against Oklahoma state. And now the Cowboys are in a position, like you said, they, they do control their own destiny, but man, like if they, if they run through the gauntlet they have left, at least particularly the, the next two Big 12 series, uh, then they're going to deserve everything they get because it's not going to be easy the rest of the way. One final note on Oklahoma State. Uh, you mentioned that you know they got six from, uh, from Osmond. It was interesting that the day before, Victor Medeiros only gave them two or three, but they went to Garrett Martin, and he gave him four. So I guess if we're looking for a, a reliever that has three, four innings in him, um, a Trevor Martin, not Garrett Martin, Trevor Martin gave him four. And I just thought that was interesting, like the way that uh, Josh Holiday uh, managed that that bullpen. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that meant that they didn't have Martin on Sunday. And I'm not saying the game goes any differently if they have Trevor Martin, but uh, it, it was kind of notable that the way that they used him, it just felt like they were kind of all in on trying to win on Saturday. And um, it's not like they don't have other relievers, but to, to run him out there for that kind of, of outing in a game that they were losing at the time that he entered, uh, I found to be interesting and something to watch down the stretch as, yeah, I mean, as Oklahoma State keeps working through things. That is a relatively new, that's a good point. Cause it is a relatively newish thing. I mean, he was more or less a one inning guy for most of the rest of the season and here in the last couple of weeks, he's been stretched out a little bit, obviously and enough, but nothing like what we saw Saturday where it was four innings. That's um, basically twice as long as he's gone all season with the exception of a midweek game against Wichita state where he threw three innings. So that is interesting. And you do wonder if this is kind of a shifting understanding for Oklahoma state, a shifting understanding of what their pitching staff is. If, you know, maybe they've, you know, they've been trying to to put square pegs and round holes and they've given a lot of latitude to Maderos and Osmond. And I think in some cases, particularly the growth we've seen from Osmond, who's still up and down, but is inarguably better this year than he has been, you know, so I think giving them that latitude has worked, but now, you know, we're at brass tacks now and Victor Maderos is sitting there with a six and a half ERA and, so, you know, at some point you do have to kind of have a hard discussion about how are we going to move forward with this? And perhaps Trevor Martin being that type of reliever um, is something that's part of just like a newer understanding of how they're going to have to attack things on the mound, because, you know, there is a point where you do have to kind of be serious about the way you're going to approach the postseason because that's, that's coming here pretty quickly. And so winning games, of course, is the most important thing along the way, but you also do have to kind of, in your back pocket, have some sort of an idea of, Hey, if a regional started Friday, like how would we ultimately want to attack this thing? Final, final note on the pokes. Um, 
they also lost midweek to Oral Roberts. Their RPI dropped out of the top 25 uh, over the week. They lost 12 spots in RPI. They dropped out of the top 20, in fact. Uh, because of the schedule left, if they win the games that they like, – like if they win games, their RPI is going to take care of itself. Uh, but again, they have a really tough closing schedule. I don't think it's, you know, you can no longer take it as certain that Oklahoma State is looking like a regional host. They have, they have to perform over the next two weeks, particularly against Texas and Texas Tech. So uh, Oklahoma State now up against it a little bit, whatever margin for error they had, basically all gone, it feels like, certainly in the Big 12 title race and, and maybe in the hosting race as well. So uh, a big couple weeks coming for Oklahoma State. Uh, Joe, we're going to uh, head down to Macon, Georgia here in a second. But first, check this out. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. What I love about using Indeed is how it does a lot of that organizational work for me. I can sort through candidates. I can respond to them. I can schedule interviews all through Indeed. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses, including Baseball America, that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Baseball America. Just go to Indeed.com slash Baseball America right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash Baseball America. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. All right, Joe, the other big series uh, or the other big first first versus second showdown this weekend was in the Southern Conference, and that saw Wofford traveling to Mercer. Uh, these Wofford came into the weekend ranked number 24. Mercer kind of on the edge of the top 25, both teams looking like regional contenders, and Wofford comes away with a, another big road series win. Uh, they won a rather offensive Friday night game. Then they came back on Saturday, won five to nothing. Mercer comes away with the win uh, in the finale, walking off with a 10-8 uh, win. Uh, it's a tough one for Wofford uh, on Sunday as they had just tied the game in the top of the ninth, only to get walked off on uh, in the bottom half. Uh, but still, a great weekend for the Terriers. Their RPI is up to 10. Don't look now. Uh, we'll see how sustainable that is. Uh, but they have done some incredible things this year, and they're now in control of the SoCon title race. Yeah, big weekend for Wofford. I mean, that's sometimes with these mid-major conferences, you you see, and this one was a little more slow developing because the SoCon got conference play started so late because they only do seven weekends. So there, we, you know, we didn't get a long look at this, but so often these mid-major conferences come down to just this one showdown weekend. 
And that that's what we had here. Um, and it, it lived up to the billing, at least in terms of, I mean, Sunday's game was, was more interesting than the first two for sure in, in terms of the actual uh, back and forth of the game. But I think we saw what we were kind of looking to see here where it was pretty clear the first two days who the better team was and, and Wofford that, that was, that was obviously Wofford in this case. And they showed the, I think what was interesting is they kind of showed what's a little bit different about them versus what you sometimes see with these types of teams that are mid-majors that get ranked and we start playing around with the idea of hosting and, and the whole bit, like oftentimes those teams are one-sided um, at least on, on the surface on paper. And, and we kind of start to like, uh, you know, they could, they could get gotten this way or that way. And Wofford is a more offensive team versus a pitching team, but by scoring 17 runs and a win on Friday and then shutting out a very good Mercer offense the next day, I think they show that there are more sides to this than kind of your typical mid-major that's in this position. And I think that's precisely what makes them so interesting. And I suppose we'll have time to break down the host case and all that kind of stuff moving forward. But I think it's what puts Wofford in a position where whether they're hosting it or whether they are among the more dangerous two seeds in the field, which is also a very real possibility. Like this is a team that I think could throw a little bit something different at a, a number one seed or a number two, if they're hosting it, because, you know, sometimes you, you come in with those kind of teams and regionals and you just kind of know um, if we just kind of stop this one part of their game, or if we throw a wrench in this, we can beat them. But, but Wofford's ready to ready to beat you in a few different ways. And they, they showed that over the weekend against Mercer for sure. Wofford runs this you know, hyper-aggressive offense. They've stolen more than 100 bases already this year, so they're already kind of difficult to deal with. Uh, and then this year, I, I like what they're bringing on the pitching staff. Matthew Marshall uh, had a quality start on, on Friday. Like, yeah, the, the final score, 70-7, to 7, doesn't really indicate that it was a great pitch game, but he had a quality start on Friday night. Um, Josh Vitus followed with five scoreless to start Saturday. They have a real closer in Dalton Radins. I mean, there, there's some real there there to the pitching staff. It is not just about the offense. And um, I, yeah, to, to your point there. And Wofford now has won. They've won 30 games this year. It's the seventh time in the last eight full seasons that Wofford has won 30 games. I mean, this is just an incredibly consistent program under Todd Interdonato. But what Wofford is doing this year, they, I mean, it's basically unprecedented in in program history. Uh, they've only been to the NCAA tournament once as a division one school that was in 2007. Uh, they are, I don't want to say they're a lock like dead, dead set lock right now, but they're locked. Um, and like, they're going to make the tournament this year. I can't imagine, uh, that they won't obviously if they completely fall apart down the stretch, like that's, that's a different story, but they're 30 and 10 at this point. This is, this is certainly looking like a, uh, more like a host contender than not making it. I, and I, I do also want to say, Joe, though, that Mercer played well this weekend. They showed a lot of fight coming back to win on Sunday, especially after the game was tied in the ninth inning that very easily could have gone away from them. It didn't. Um, they are just a game back of Wofford. Making up that game probably going to be very difficult at this point, but it's not like their title hopes are, are totally dead. Uh, Although probably again, they, it, the, the, this very much felt like a title decider, but Mercer still has a top 25 RPI. They're 32 and eight. They have wins against Georgia, Georgia tech, Utah, 
um, now Wofford, like this is a, a real resume and, you know, we'll see if they can hold their RPI here. Uh, the SoCon only has one other top 100 team. It's East Tennessee state. They're number 94. So they're a tenuous grasp on the top 100 to begin with. Uh, so Mercer is going to have to really win its games the rest of the way, but I feel like they should be able to do that. And the SoCon should be a multi-bid league for Joe. When was the last time the SoCon was a multi-bid league? Hmm. 2013. 2012. And it was actually a three-bid league. (laughs) How about that? It was remarkable. And two of the teams that that got in went to regional finals. Now, the SoCon was way different back then. Like, Georgia Southern was there. Elon was there. College of Charleston was there. Um, You know, and and Mercer was not a a, a SoCon team yet. East Tennessee State was not a SoCon team yet. So conference realignment has really hit the SoCon hard in the last decade. Uh, App State was also in the league, and they were one of the regional finalists in 2012. Um, so it's a different league, but it's still, like, even with all the changes, this still has been one of the quietly better mid-major leagues. And so this year, I really, really hope, and it didn't happen last year for the MAC, so we know things like this are tenuous, but I really, really hope that the SOCON is able to get multi-bids this year because having watched this series... I, I just don't think you can come away with any kind of opinion that is it like Mercer and Wofford are both regional caliber clubs. Yeah. It's, it's the SoCon to me is East coast, the East coast version of the West coast conference where it's like, this conference is clearly good enough to have two teams. And it's just a matter of if the numbers are going to shake out that way. Um, so, but yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I mean, those two teams feel like they're in really good shape and Wofford, frankly, I mean, whether or not they host, I mean, let's, you know, even setting that aside, like being as high as they are in RPI really gives them quite a bit of insulation because they they do have some RPI landmines the rest of the way. Series against the Citadel, Western Carolina, and VMI, all of which, as we sit today, have RPIs worse than 200. And oh, by the way, Samford, which is talented enough to beat them, especially with that game games being at home for Samford, uh, their RPI is 177 as we sit today. So um, kind of a tricky finish here for Wofford. Um, so if, if Wofford was in a position where their RPI was closer to like 30, as opposed to, you know, where it is now, that's where it would, you know, where you could see like, okay, if they, if they don't sweep these series, like that could put them in trouble, but they've given themselves enough insulation now, um, that to your point, they're not quite a lock, but they would really have to do something completely unexpected down the stretch in order to not, end up being a, being a postseason team, which is huge for, I mean, you talk about the consistency they've had and it's really kind of, um, a tragedy is too strong a word, but that's, I mean, but it's, it's for them, it just has to be so disappointing. They've been so good for so long and they've never really been able to break through and it always feels like they're close. They're always right there in the mix and it just never, never quite happens for them. So to, to see them have that opportunity this year would be, um, would be cool for, for a, a group that's been trying to, trying to, to knock down that door for a while now. Absolutely. And anything you said there about the, the landmines potentially existing for Wofford, they all exist for Mercer too. Um, and uh, Wofford has already played Mercer and ETSU and they're eight and one. Those are the team's second and third in the conference. They're eight and one in the league. So I feel like they should be able to handle the bottom half uh, of the SOCON, but you know, we'll see. Uh, uh, 
but avoiding any sort of slip ups down the stretch would would uh, certainly be be the way to go for the Terriers. Uh, don't want to leave any doubts here, but they again have positioned themselves so well, and it's a really fun team to watch. Uh, if you're not playing them, I imagine teams on the opposing side of the dugout have a slightly uh, slightly different view of of the Terriers and, and watching them go about their business. All right, Joe, let's uh, let's keep it moving here. And let's go to Texas A&M. A&M this weekend was playing Arkansas at home in College Station. They play the two teams played two real good pitchers duels on Friday and Saturday. Split those two games, and then Sunday was absolutely not a pitchers duel. It was one of those crazy Sunday games where uh, A&M got up big early on. Arkansas came back uh, and very much had a chance to take the lead there uh, in the eighth inning Jacob Palish comes out of the bullpen escapes a jam and then finishes off the game uh, with a perfect ninth and AM walks away with an 11 to 10 victory and a crucial series win AM now moves into the top 25 for the first time this season uh, they are really hot right now um just a, a really impressive series win there. Just Arkansas's second series loss on the season. Uh, and and AM just, they, they feel like a team that is close. Like they, they, they have gelled at the right time. If, if you remember early in the season, AM lost to Penn. AM went one and two at the Frisco Classic. Like we were not expecting, I was not expecting to be talking this way about AM, but. They have found themselves, they've gelled in SEC play, and they are they are a team that you're really going to have to watch out for down the stretch. No doubt about that. And it's a they are right now trending on the high end of the wide, 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 wide uh, spectrum of outcomes <laughs> that we had for this team. I mean, we, we talked both on the podcast in the preseason and the offseason and certainly offline about how this A&M team, you could tell me just about anything about this A&M team, and I would have believed you in terms of result. You could have told me before the season, like, yeah, the, the transfers thing just doesn't quite take, and they end up being – I thought they'd be better regardless than they were last year, but they end up still being just off the bubble. Um, they're pesky, but not actually really any good in the SEC. And I also would have believed, you know, if you told me that this team really gels because they added so much talent and there's new energy in the program and they end up sneaking their way into being in the host discussion. And like, don't look now, they're probably a good weekend or two away from that. So um, they are trending in the right direction there. And the fascinating, the fascinating thing about that too, is that this is just such a, the 2022 Texas A&M team is such a bespoke solution for this year's team and whatever happens this year, good or bad. And now it looks like it's just mostly going to be good isn't necessarily going to have any bearing on what 2023 and beyond looks like. There are definitely some things, right? Like, you know, Jack Moss is not a grad transfer. He's going to be part of the team next year and will certainly be a big part of whatever their lineup looks like in 2023. But there's no way around the fact that they are leaning heavily on um, grad transfers, whether it's, you know, Dylan Rock or Troy Clonch, Cole Kaler, Jacob Palish, Micah Dallas. There's just going, there's just, no matter how this season went, there was going to be a lot of turnover on the roster between this year and next year. And so you could look at that two ways for AM. One, it's like kind of feels like 
just this like purgatory between, you know, that they had to kind of go through a year of in order to get to the actual rebuilding of the roster. The flip side, the more positive spin of that, though, is that you can just kind of enjoy this season for what it is, knowing that like, hey, it's just we're just going to try this thing with a bunch of transfers. We're going to try to reboot the roster like on the fly and see how it goes. And right now, I mean, it's it's been a bumpy ride, uh, at least the first half of the season. But right now it feels like it's really working out well for AM and um and with, you know, again, the high end of what the expectations were for them just right there in front of them. They've won nine of their last 12, dating back to a series loss at Alabama the first weekend of April. The last two weekends, they've now been in Arkansas and Georgia. They threw in a blowout of DBU on Tuesday for good measure. Um, I mean, you mentioned that they might get into the hosting race like with another good weekend. Like I'm here to tell you that they're kind of already there. RPI is up to 21. Uh, they still have work to do, no doubt about it, but it's not premature to start looking around and thinking, is this a team that can host? And by the way, AM hasn't hosted a regional. They did host a super regional more recently than this. They've not hosted a regional since 2016 when they won the SEC tournament. They play at Vanderbilt this weekend. That'll be uh, a, a big weekend. But after that, it's uh, South Carolina, Mississippi State, and Ole Miss. And Mississippi State is playing a lot better. Probably get to them here on the pod uh, as well. South Carolina has shown they can beat anyone at any time, but also has shown they can lose to anyone at any time. And Ole Miss is reeling right now. Um, like It's not an easy run-in. There's no such thing in the SEC, but it's a totally manageable run-in. And the way AM is playing right now, none of those teams should scare the Aggies. Like I, I am kind of... I don't know that I'm going to project them as hosts in this week's update to the field of 64, but in my mind, like I am just already prepared for there to be a regional uh, at Olson this year. Like I, I think that's where this team is trending and I am just very impressed with the job that Jim Schlossnagel has done this season, as well as his assistants, um, you know, Michael early working through the offense and with Nolan Kane and um, Nate Yeski getting the pitching right. I mean, Nathan Detmer's development over the last six weeks has been remarkable uh, at the front of that rotation. They wouldn't be where they are without that happening. And uh, I just what they've been able to do in terms of in-season adjustments and improvements has been, has been nothing short of remarkable. And yeah, I mean, some of it early on was that they weren't super healthy, but I still, the, the, the way that they've done this, I, I can't say enough about yeah, that's one thing that stands out to me in, in light of the weekend results, but really looking at the big picture, I think the job that they've done on the mound, I, mean, the, the, I, I do like the lineup just, just quickly on that. Like it's, it's got good depth. I mean, unless you're really into Dylan rock or, or, or Jack Moss's potential, like it's, it's a lineup that doesn't necessarily have a superstar name that people are going to know, but it's, it's just a really solid lineup, especially now that Trevor Warner is, is back in the lineup and gives them a little bit more uh, depth there. But the mound has been what they've done on the mound to kind of cobble it together has been pretty impressive because it's not like it's been totally easy in that regard. I mean, they lost Christian Curtis, their midweek guy, uh, partway through the season. And like you might say, like, oh, well, that's the midweek guy. And I get it, but that does mean everybody has to slide down a seat, right? And so that does tap into your depth for the weekend because you're having to handle more innings on Tuesdays or Wednesday or whatever it is. So there's, there's that. Um, Jonathan Childers has thrown one third inning this year. 
Um, you know, Joseph Minifee, a guy who you thought might be a workhorse reliever, has an ERA over seven, and it's like 675 in SEC play. So he's not necessarily been the lockdown guy you, you might have thought in the bullpen, even though he's had some some moments. So, you know, they're getting it done with a combination of guys, like you mentioned, the development of Nathan Detmer and some new faces like Jacob Palish is it was a nice pitcher at Stanford at times, but he looks like he's just on a different level now in terms of being a guy who can really dominate in the bullpen, which was not what I would have associated with him after coming off his time at Stanford was being able to, to dominate in, in the bullpen like that. So I think that that's, that's been a huge thing is that it's not, this isn't, you know, with Texas A&M, the word association is pretty strong with like, they've got, you know, real dudes on the pitching staff and that's not to take anything away from Nathan Detmer who has come a long, long way, but I'm just talking about in terms of track record coming into this season, that's not what this has been necessarily. They've had to kind of patch some things together and they're, you know, it hasn't always been pretty, but they're really getting it done. On the flip side, Arkansas has now lost two of their last three series. They're still in first place in the SEC West, which says a lot about the work they had done beforehand. And also that they didn't get swept in either of those series losses. Um, their RPI is 27. Joe, first of all, what? And second of all, are you at all concerned about the Hogs? <laughs> Uh, good questions. Um, I will start with the, what it, it, it kind of feels like we have a number of teams that are kind of in a similar place to that. Right. I mean, we've talked about TCU and Oklahoma state both have RPIs closer to 30 than 20, like Arkansas is in that mix at, at 27, like Maryland might be on the way to dominating the big 10 with a mid twenties ERA or ERA, um, mid twenties ERA would not be good. That wouldn't get you very far. A mid twenties RPI. That would be so, a big indictment of this year's Big Ten, and this year's Big Ten doesn't need any more big indictments. That's right. Yeah, that's exactly, that's exactly right. And so I don't know if it's that we've got some teams, because we also have the opposite, right? It's like we're waiting on Vanderbilt to actually put a host resume together with a top 10 RPI. Like Georgia Tech has fallen a little bit, but they were in that, that they're at 20 now. They were in the top 10 or even the top five as recently as a couple of weeks ago. So um, anyway, uh, so I'm not exactly sure what all kind of goes into that, but that's, I mean, that's like, like, I, I can, they're not alone like, in that. I, I can look under the hood a little bit here, and basically all you have to do is see this number. Non-conference strength of schedule, 260. Uh, they didn't play any road games, really, in non-conference, uh, and I think like they actually have played literally none. They went to Round Rock. Uh, those don't count as road games. Um, and they didn't play. It, it just did not break right for them. Illinois State is on the wrong side of 150 uh, Southeastern Louisiana is on the wrong side of hundred Illinois, Chicago wrong side of 150. And then like all their midweek games are against teams with horrific RPIs. Uh, I mean, at some point you would just expect the sec to rise, like, like raise up the hogs RPI and I keep waiting for it to happen and it probably will eventually, but I don't know about top eight seed at this point. I, like, I think at this point, I, I have to be a little concerned about that. Um, I think that the SEC West champ will probably end up with a top eight seed, right? But like, Arkansas is going to need to keep doing the work. And this weekend would have been an opportunity. AM has a nice RPI. They were on the road, but like, they just didn't get it done. And oh, by the way, this is a team that's only played nine true road games and they're four and five in them. So. And they're one in, uh, you know, they were did go two and one in Round Rock, but like 500 away from Fayetteville, not great. Yeah, I mean, it, the on the field stuff. I I came away from this series kind of thinking, tell me if this makes sense. Like, this is 
exactly the type of series that Arkansas might have gotten into last year. And last year, they 100% win this series. They probably like, swept on, it last year. Yeah, like on two fronts, right? One is because Kevin Copps would have come in in the fourth inning of the Sunday game. And if he did what he did all season last year, like that comeback probably, they probably finished that comeback because AM scores eight instead of 11. Um, so there's that. The second thing is we've talked about this before, and this is more ethereal. And that's that they just seem to have the clutch gene last year offensively. And this year, like, so you could see that two to one loss on Friday, instead of only scoring a single run in the six, like last year, you could easily see a situation where you get a Robert Moore home run. And that's not me putting it on Robert Moore. It just seemed like he was the guy last year, more often than not making the difference there late. And then on Sunday, again, they score five in the eighth, which it feels like they're like 80% of the way there. And then they, just couldn't get back over the hump. And that does seem to be a little bit of a theme this year where they're in these situations where the offense last year would have bailed them out with that clutch home run. And just there this year, it's just not happening to the degree it was last year, which tracks because last year we kept having those same discussions, right? Where it's like, surely Kevin cops can't do this all year. And the answer was, well, yes, he can. And then like, surely the offense can't you know, can't keep bailing them out this way. And they did right up until they didn't against NC state. Right. So um, it, that tracks with conversations we were having last year. And like this year you take cops out of the equation and you take some of those, those clutch moments offensively out of the equation. And this is kind of what you got. I think. And then beat them on Friday night with two hits. They scored two runs in the fourth inning and made that stand up like it for a team with Arkansas's offensive potential that just shouldn't be happening. Um, you know, AM pitched really well, obviously. They held Arkansas to five hits. Uh, but like that, they wasted a really nice start from Connor Nolan. And um, yeah, it's just not something that we would have talked about them doing last year. That if they got that kind of start, they they were absolutely winning. And um, you know, I I don't know that anything is materially wrong with Arkansas. They just if you're gonna compare them to last year's team, clearly they aren't that, but uh it's still a really dangerous team. I don't fully know what the ceiling is um, interested in finding that out in May because uh, this weekend they go home to play Ole Miss again, Ole Miss reeling. Um, then they're at Auburn home to Vanderbilt at Alabama. That is a really tough May. Uh, so I very curious to see how Arkansas goes down the stretch here uh, of sec play. All right, Joe, let's uh uh, let's clean some stuff up in the SEC before we move on. Uh, Tennessee swept Florida. Uh, that's notable because Tennessee is 17 and one in the SEC, and that is a record. No team has ever started uh, SEC play with a, a better record than that. They broke their own record uh, that they'd held for like 60 years as being the only 16 and one team. Uh, but now 17 and one for the Vols. Obviously, we don't have a ton more to say about Tennessee. They have a huge. Um, series this weekend against Auburn. However, Joe, uh, what did significantly happen beyond just the basic sweep of Florida is that Blake Tidwell uh, made his SEC starting debut of the season. He had made like a midweek start or two somewhere in there, but uh, this was the first time he got in there for an SEC start. They got him in there because Chase Dollander uh, missed his start after getting hit in the arm last week at Alabama and Tidwell preseason All-American who missed the start of the year due to shoulder soreness. He was outstanding. So Tennessee just 
now has four amazing starters once Chase Dollander comes back. We'll uh, we'll see what they do with that. I want to spend we'll spend more time on Tennessee ahead of the Sovereign Series on Thursday. Joe, I do want to mention here though, Florida is now six and twelve. Uh, there are twelve games left in SEC play. I think at this point, you know, Florida has this. Their strength of schedule is two. Their RPI is thirteen. Those numbers are going to be relatively sticky. I think, based on previous years of of data, an SEC team like that needs thirteen regular season wins, and then probably one win in the in Hoover to feel good or like okay, like to be to be in the mix for the tournament. Every year is different. Blah blah blah. Still, I, I think. Florida's target here down the stretch is seven more wins. Uh, that means seven and five over the last four weeks. Do you see Florida going seven and five over the next four weeks? I actually do. I mean, they haven't done a lot to instill confidence, but consider that of the SEC weekends they've had so far this season, like the lightest one has been LSU. Alabama, maybe. I guess probably Alabama. I was on the road, um, though. It's either at Alabama or home to LSU, yeah. And those were their first yeah, two mean, SEC weekends. Like, they have gone through the gauntlet, and their last four weekends are Kentucky at home, Mississippi State on the road. Looks a little trickier now, but Mississippi State on the road, Missouri on the road, and then South Carolina at home. Like, I like – there's no such – especially this year, there's no such thing as an easy weekend in the SEC with as pesky as, as Missouri is. But – um, I think they probably get their seven wins given those four series. Um, you know, that's, that's the, that's the kind of finish you want to have. Now they were probably hoping that with a strong finish, they get host as opposed to just getting into the postseason. But, uh, you know, but as far as seven wins go, I think they look pretty good for that. And if they don't get it, I mean, it just kind of hammers home the fact that there's just this Florida team has just really not been, um, not done a whole lot to inspire confidence really from the jump other than that series win against Miami. All right. Uh, also in the SEC this weekend, Vanderbilt threw a no-hitter uh, against Kentucky on Friday. Chris McElvain and Christian Little combined for that. Uh, Kentucky made things spicy uh, by winning on Saturday, but uh, Vanderbilt wins the series on Sunday. And there was uh, also a, a big rivalry series with Mississippi taking on Mississippi State. Started on Thursday. Ole Miss got a win in the opener. Uh, first time they'd won an opener in that, in that rivalry series since like 2015. Also the last time they had beaten Mississippi State at Swayze Field. Um, however, they were not able to close that series out. Mississippi State came back, won the series. Uh, and they're now reasonably well positioned. Like they're going to have to do things down the stretch, but they're 8-10. and 10. Uh, their RPI is not Florida's RPI. They're sitting at 76. They're probably going to need six or seven wins more in, in SEC play, counting Hoover. Uh, but I, I would, I'm starting to feel much better about the reigning champs' uh, chances of uh, getting back to the tournament. Meanwhile, Ole Miss sitting at 6-12. and 12, Again, they are not dealing with Florida's RPI and strength of schedule. They're at 64. Uh that team is going to need at least 14 SEC wins. And uh, right now I just don't see how Ole Miss is going to turn it around and go eight and four down the stretch. Yeah. It seems tough, especially when, I mean, this weekend was 
even going into the weekend, you kind of looked at it for Ole Miss as this is this is the weekend, right? You're at home. It's your rival. This is the last stand. And you even saw like flashes of it, right? So not only do they win a game, but you go into that finale and you've got, you know, you've got a dramatic hit for, you know, Jacob Gonzalez late in the game and he's fired up and you, you know, you had some late moments out of the bullpen where there was, you know, some energy in the stadium. Like they had massive crowds, which I get because it's a home series against a rival, but given how. And it was Grove Bowl weekend. Indeed, that helps. Uh, So it's a massive weekend at at Oxford and you, you kind of. You know, you weren't sure you could bank on that kind of energy in the stadium with how poorly they've played it, at least lately over the last month. So, like, it, it did feel like, hey, we've got this, all this energy in the stadium, and this is our last stand, and if we're going to do it, it has to happen now, and it just wasn't enough. <laughs> and I think that's just kind of an indictment of the situation where if 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 you have all of that kind of going for you and then you're still coming up short, like, that just, that just is what it is, I think. And that's... um you know, kind of amazing considering where they started the year. Dylan DeLuca went five hit CG on Thursday night. It just felt like things were going right for Ole Miss. And then, yeah, they lose seven to or 10 to seven on, on Friday and seven to six and 11 innings on, on Saturday. It just, it got away from them. And so now they go to Arkansas home against Missouri at LSU home against AM. And again, I'm saying they need at least eight wins and maybe more. Um, it's it's a really tough road to hoe for uh, for the rebels from here. Uh, all right, Joe, that'll do it for the SEC for us this week. Um, exciting as always. Uh, let's head out west though. Here, Washington State has become the Pac-12 spoiler after a, after a difficult start to the season. Uh, Washington State is has now won in the last three weeks series at Arizona, and now this weekend. Uh, they went to Eugene and beat Oregon twice. Um, Wazoo, I, they, they played three close games. They could have swept this weekend. They they really could have. They lost on Friday night in 10 innings They when Oregon scored five runs in the ninth to tie the game and send it to extras. Uh, then they came back and won 10 to 8. And on Sunday, they staged their own late comeback for an 8-7, 10 innings win uh, to, to win the series. They were down 6 nothing in that game. And, uh, and they come back for the win. So uh, really impressive weekend for the Cougars. Uh, really, really got to feel like, though, if you're if you're Oregon, that this was a missed opportunity. Yeah, I mean, they were in good. We talked about it last week or maybe it was a week before. But regardless, we talked about how Oregon deserves a lot of credit because it, ha- it has speaking of teams, it hasn't been easy for like it hasn't been easy for them on the injuries front and what have you. And, and they just kind of kept finding ways to get it done. And you kind of thought like, you know, this team might be able to just ride this to hosting a regional, you know, and, and there are teams that do that. Right. I mean, every year there are teams that host regionals because the numbers are good. And you, you look at the team on the field and you kind of like, ah, I don't, I don't have a lot of confidence there, but they, they managed to get it done. And it, I think that's always commendable. And they looked like that kind of team. And then it just kind of fell flat th- this past weekend. And maybe that was just always going to come with this group, especially with what they've been dealing with on the mound. I mean, the the ERA in conference is closer to six than it is to five. Uh, the the two guys they're kind of leaning most on in starting roles are R.J. Gordon and Isaac Ione. And R.J. Gordon has a 7.24 ERA. Isaac Ione, who pitched pretty well in the series actually, um, has an 8.04 ERA in conference play. And I don't have to tell you that those really aren't going to get it done. So it, it just felt like that, which has been a concern really throughout the most of the season at this point. 
it felt like that finally kind of caught up with them. And, and this team proves time and again, it can swing the bats. Like it, it can come back from all kinds of deficits and get its team out to big leads. And it's, it's just a matter of if the pitching is going to do enough. And, and on this, on this particular weekend, it combined with the fact that it's a Washington state team that just appears to be playing with a lot more confidence. Like it, it just wasn't enough for the ducks this time around. Washington state started two and 10 in pac 12 play. Um, clearly I, they, Health was a factor in that. They've gotten healthier, but also clearly, like they are, they're just playing better. Um, they're now three games behind Cal for the last spot in the Pac-12 tournament. They also have already lost a series to Cal, so they, it's going to be hard for them to make up that ground. This may just be too late, but at the at the very minimum, Washington State uh, definitely should be commended for you know being able to to dig out of this, play the spoiler role. And uh, if you're UCLA in a couple of weeks, like, uh, you know, you're hosting Washington State. You've already seen them get Arizona and Oregon. You got to you got to be taking Washington State more seriously than than you might have uh, a month ago. So uh, kudos to the Cougars for, uh, for, you know, staging this kind of midseason turnaround in Pac-12 play. Well, remains to be seen whether it will be enough to get them into the Pac-12 tournament, but uh, certainly has been entertaining to to watch yeah i think this uh <laughs> the, the this being the first pac-12 tournament i think we're seeing in one season i think it's 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 beautiful because in one season we're seeing the why i think it's good this league has gone just even beyond saying like oh it could get you more teams in the re- into regionals that's true but I, i'm not even thinking about that but i think we're seeing in one season why it's a good thing for this league to have gone to a tournament at the end of the season and also kind of how sometimes they the tournament fields can kind of fall flat at times because we could be in a situation if Washington State takes a step back like you said already three games behind Cal doesn't have the tiebreaker with Cal unless someone else falls off um, you know we could be in a situation where the eight teams that are in the Pac-12 tournament are set by the time the last weekend even begins yeah I, I should say Washington State is ninth they are three games out of eighth yeah right so like they they've you know they're, 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 they have a tough hill to climb already and they, they could fall out of it if they fall back any, but regardless, but the positive spin though, is that you've now got teams like a team like Washington state, which I'm not saying it would have been all for naught in a normal year, because there is, especially if you have a younger team or if you're a newer head coach, which Brian green is, there is value in, Hey, we played a lot better in the second half of the season. We can see the progress, so on and so forth, right? That is very much a thing. I don't want to discount that. However, it is kind of a bummer when ultimately you know the exact date on which your season is going to end. And that would have been the case in a normal Pac-12 year for this Washington State team. So even though they do have a tall hill to climb, like it is nice for that program or you know, for a Cal team whose season, frankly, would be just about over if um, in a normal year before the Pac-12 tournament. It is nice that those teams now kind of A, have something to actually play for late in the season and B have at least a spark of, Hey, you know what, if we play well in Scottsdale and we put four or five good games together, you know, we could, we could get it done. So um, that is the benefit of this. Even if, as I look at it now, it kind of seems like there might not necessarily be a ton (laughs) to play for once these teams show up in Scottsdale. Also uh, in the PAC 12 this weekend, Arizona won a series against Arizona state. Sun Devils fought really hard on this one. Uh, definitely made Arizona work for it. Uh, but in the end, Arizona gets it done thanks to a mammoth 
home run from Chase Davis on Friday night and then came back, uh, lost on Saturday, comes back, wins the rubber game on Sunday. Uh, Arizona needed that. Arizona State also needed that. Uh, but uh, a very well-played series uh, in Tucson. All right, let's uh, go over to the ACC. It was not the noisiest ACC weekend, Joe. Um, it did, however, produce a pretty significant upset as Clemson won a series against Florida State. Uh, that one came down to a Sunday rubber game. Clemson came back for the win in that one. Tough weekend uh, for Florida State after just a, a sensational week, the, the week before at home. Um, as the ACC turns, though, uh, that this is what happens. Also, uh, Wake Forest um, got swept at Notre Dame. We talked about that a bit on the preview pod about how one of those teams was really going to be fighting it with uh, back-to-back series losses coming out of it. Um, and that turns out to be Wake Forest, which last week lost to Clemson, and now this week uh, got swept at Notre Dame. Miami bounced back from its series loss last week. At Virginia Tech, uh, with a, a win against Pitt, it was a pretty close series in some respects. Uh, Friday night, Pitt probably feels like it missed – a great opportunity to, to win that game. Miami comes away with a, a, a tight win, then blew out Pitt on Sunday before the Panthers got the uh, – blew out Pitt on Saturday before the Panthers got the, uh, the Sunday game. Virginia swept uh, North Carolina. That was big for, for the Hoos. Louisville won a series against NC State. Uh, that was a, a big showdown there. And uh, Virginia Tech and Boston College played – uh, in Fenway on Saturday, it's part of the ALS awareness game uh, that that BC annually holds uh, at Fenway to honor Pete Freitas. Uh, Virginia Tech sweeps that series. Uh, they, however, raised a bunch of money, and that is um, the much bigger uh, picture item from uh, from the weekend in Boston. There for those two teams. Uh, oh, and Georgia Tech lost the series to Duke. So. Uh, there's that Joe, any of that in the ACC, take it, take it where you want it. Look, we've said it before. We'll say it again. You know, I, I a tough weekend for Georgia tech. I mean, what do you, what, what are you going to do when you get caught up in the, the annual Duke run to the postseason? Like it's just, <laughs> there's just nothing you could do. Like you, there are, there's no force of nature that could stop Duke's run to the postseason in late April and early in uh, early May. That's just, that's just the way it goes. Um, interesting thing in the, in the ACC schedule, I, I will, I do have other thoughts, but just quickly, like we're getting now into finals break time. Yes, it is finals like, week and you can tell. And so, <laughs> so like, you know, with, with Wake Forest, like you, there's two sides of the same coin, right? So with Wake Forest, is it a good or a bad thing that they, now they do have two games this weekend at a conference against Longwood on Sunday. It's a doubleheader Sunday. So, and then Duke doesn't play this week at all. So like, is it a good or bad thing that this finals week is coming for these for these two teams, you know, um, I think you could make an argument really either way, but certainly it's good just in the light of, you know, I remember what finals were like, and I was not a particularly, <laughs> a particularly great student. And I was also not going to Duke, you know, in terms of academics, uh, no, no, sh- no shots at Sam Houston state, the, uh, Harvard of the piney woods, but, um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it was, it was a different deal. So anyway, we are now kind of in this place where it's interesting to kind of compare Clemson and, and Duke in terms of the postseason path each has. Um, 
it's also kind of wild just because you look at you look at what they're bringing to the table and and duke is really kind of gritting and grinding through this thing because i'm really not sure like duke's lineup doesn't have a ton of depth right now their pitching staff stat sheet is is not particularly pretty and they are they really are just kind of gritting and grinding and then on the clemson side if you had told me when i look at this if you had told me that that Clemson is going to be led by Max Wagner, who shout out massive year quietly for Max Wagner, 17 home runs. Um, Max Wagner, Cooper Engel, a couple of transfers in Ben Blackwell and Tyler Corbett, Blake Wright. Like that's going to be the, the best hitters in the lineup. I would have thought, okay, like Clemson, Clemson might be, and then you showed me their numbers, right? It's not like leading the offense because they're hitting 280. Like, and then you showed me their numbers. I'd have been like, okay, I, I think Clemson might be cooking with gas, but Caden Grice just has never really gotten it going this year. You veterans like Briar Hawkins and Jonathan French that have never, that just haven't really gotten going this year. And so it feels like they've actually left some stuff on the table offensively. And then the pitching, of course, for Clemson, I just, I just don't know who they're really trusting it at this point. That's kind of more of the bugaboo there. I say all that to say the past, essentially Clemson has, I guess you could call it, uh, you know, at least a little bit of a scheduling break in that they still have BC on the schedule. However, leading up to that, they have Louisville on the road, Georgia Tech at home. We know how that's tricky, especially when you're short on the mound, though. And then Virginia on the road. And that feels uh, tough, frankly. So they're 6-11. and 11. They're missing a, a game because their finale pit got washed out. They have 12 games left. ACC, game, ACC teams, like I, I talked about how Florida just get to 13 SEC wins, like with your strength of schedule in the SEC, like I, I can point to examples where it has worked for you to get in with 13 wins. ACC typically doesn't quite work that way. And while Clemson does not have an RPI problem, their RPI is 35, their strength of schedule is nice at 22. Um, neither of those numbers are, are massive. Like they're, they're very good. I just think they got to win eight I think they got to win eight and then you know they're going to go and play in the ACC tournament and the wonkiness of the ACC tournament means that they almost have to win two there because if they only win one they're they, they would go one and one and be at in danger of getting eliminated in pool play uh, based on the fact that they don't have the higher seed so you know I feel like Either they're going to really have to turn it on uh, in these final four weekends and, and leave no doubt in the regular season, or you're going to talk about a team that's like 14 and 15 or 13 and 16 uh, and needs to win two games to get out of its pool uh, in Charlotte uh, if, if they're going to get to the NCAA tournament. I, it's, it's doable, but that, that series against Virginia particularly, Virginia just doesn't lose at home. Um, that, and so to, to go to Charlottesville needing something, I mean, to go to Louisville this weekend, needing something, these are, these are really tough things to have, to ask. Yeah. I mean, that's the, that's the thing is if, if you flipped the home and away there, uh, you know, and, and you had BC on the road and Georgia tech on the road and played Louisville and Virginia at home, I might, I might be a little more inclined, but it, it does feel a little bit, it feels tougher than I'll give you Duke. You know, Duke has nine conference games left probably needs to go roughly six and three against Pitt, NC state and Virginia tech. And that's a little more doable. Um, you know, <laughs> they obviously would, would like the BC draw. They didn't get that, but, um, that, that feels like tough, but at least in the realm 
of possibility. And then you're right about the ACC tournament. It just, that format is not conducive. Like there are all kinds of sides to the debate about the ACC tournament format. One thing you can certainly say is it is not really conducive to you being able to claw your way out of something just because there aren't enough games, especially if you're a lower seed and you lose that opening game. Like one of my biggest criticisms of it is if you're a lower seed and you lose an opening game, you're just basically toast. Now, I guess that's true in the SEC tournament too. If you're in those single elimination yeah, it's games. one and done, but yeah, like you can just play so many more games. Cause if you win on Tuesday in the SEC tournament, you're guaranteed two more games yeah. and like you're, you're minimally playing three games just by winning on, on, you're minimally guaranteed three games in the tournament by winning on Tuesday. And in the ACC tournament, like to get that third game, you have to, unless you're a higher, the, one of the higher seeds in the group, you have to win two games and uh, yeah. you can play a max of four games in the, on the weekend. And like, that's great from a pitching standpoint, if we're talking about the teams that are hosts and, and like firmly in the tournament, but yeah, to, if we're talking about teams trying to claw their way in. Like you need more volume is better. Yep. Yep. I mean, yeah, that, that, that's, that's actually not a terrible idea for like an off season podcast episode where we like try to like really weigh the merits of, of conference tournament formats, because there is something to be said for the way the ACC tournament just feels less taxing, but the counter argument to that as well, but what are we really doing these tournaments for? Like some of it, I'm sh- you know, sure is like revenue and an opportunity for players to play a little postseason baseball, but from a competition standpoint, it is to give your conference the opportunity to maximize what it can get into the postseason, And I don't really know that the ACC is doing that with its format. Uh, since we're talking about Clemson and Duke six and 11 Clemson and eight and 13 Duke and in, in conference play, let's also touch on here. UNC eight and 13. Uh, they don't play this weekend. They have their finals break. They're completely off. They play on Tuesday against Liberty and you'll see them again on May 3rd uh, against Charlotte. They're at NC state and they're home to wake home to Florida state. It's, that's challenging on its face. UNC is 20 and five at home though. They are three and 12 away from the Bosch three and 12. Um, that alone, the three and 12 part is not going to be looked upon favorably. I would highly advise UNC to find a way to beat NC state if they're, they're trying to get into the tournament, but uh, what, what's your feeling on the heels? Oh, that's tough. Like I, so I, I like, I like this team better than I like either of, of Duke or Clemson. Um, I also like the home games here. I, you know, and truly they're not, they're not going on the road road again this year, unless you want to count going to Wilmington for a midweek game. Yeah. I mean, they're um, not. And, and uh, you know, the, the one time, the one road series when they have is, a, is Duke. And again, that's effectively a home weekend. Um, you know, playing at Doak is definitely different than playing at DBAP. Uh, the crowd is absolutely going to be four state in that game. But yeah, it's a quick bus ride over from Chapel Hill. Yeah, I mean, it's just it's it's going to be a, a a very pro state crowd. But it's yeah, it's just the logistics of it are a lot easier. I so I, I guess I'd probably put North Carolina at the top of this group, even understanding how poor they've been on the road, um, just because the convenience factor. Um, and also they have bagged, they have bagged eight ACC wins already. So there is, there is that as well. The advantage of the fact that they've, they did a little more work early in the season. And it, it feels like this is kind of, we've talked about this all year. Like it feels like this is kind of just the same, more or less the same path last year's team took where they, they went through some, some up and then some down and they end up doing just enough when it's all said and done. 
that will be absolutely something to watch as we get into May. Uh, all right, Joe, Big Ten. Uh, let's get to the Big Ten relatively quickly here. Two big series this weekend in the Big Ten. Uh, the first, the one that we knew about coming in or that, that we addressed on the on the pod, on the preview pod, was Maryland going to Illinois. Illinois won on Friday in like hugely loud fashion. They won 19 to one. And I, I was kind of, if you read what I wrote on Friday about that game, uh, you'll see that I was pretty down on Maryland in the moment. Well, Maryland showed me, they came back and they swept a doubleheader on Saturday uh, to win the series. They worked really hard to do it. It was, it was a really tough uh, couple of games. Uh, Illinois put up a good fight, but Maryland comes away with a, a huge series win in Champaign. Meanwhile, in Piscataway, Iowa won a series against Rutgers, uh, which came into the weekend 11-1 and in Big Ten play, and they came into the week on a 16-game winning streak. They lost Wednesday to Princeton. Uh, that was a really bad loss. And then uh, Iowa behind Adam Mazur beat him on Friday. And then Iowa blew him out on Saturday. Rutgers salvages the Sunday game. But all of that threw the Big Ten race into, I don't, yeah, I'll just say it, complete disarray. I, the, the, the Big Ten race is now, I, I will just say, completely wide open with four weeks to play. Uh, Maryland still feels like the, the clear-cut favorite here, but they don't have an easy schedule. Um, Rutgers has everything still in front of them. Illinois has the easiest schedule on paper, but you know, there's just a number of ways that this race could go. Uh, I I think it's still clear that Maryland's the best team in the big 10, but uh, in terms of how the exact standings are going to shake out there, just it's, it's really difficult to, to discern at this point. You and I have both been critical through the years of the big 10 scheduling and the fact that who you play and more importantly, who you don't play is often as big a factor in the conference race than actually like who the best team is. Um, what it does typically give us though, is really weird, interesting conference title races. And we are here again. Um, because I, you know, I think Maryland is the best team. I think Illinois has the easiest path. And I think Rutgers is probably somewhere in between the two, you know, um, what I what I like what I like about Maryland is this weekend I think they really showed they showed what we talked about a little bit on the preview episode which is just that this is a team that has now kind of shown an ability to win games in a, in a little bit of a different way early in the year it kind of felt like a team that maybe had a little bit of a narrow path They're, they were going to go as their starting pitching has gone and and while starting pitching has still been pretty good in Big Ten play it has backslid a little bit Nick Dean on Fridays in particular has struggled really ever since he was skipped a couple times in the rotation, he's come back and, and has, has, has continued to kind of struggle. Ryan Ramsey has backslid a little bit in conference play. Jason Savakul has, has been the best of the bunch out there. Um, but they're able to win games even when that doesn't go right, because this weekend, I mean, obviously Friday, that game was, you know, out of hand, but even the next two days, it's not like they got pristine pitching performances. Savakul ends up going eight, but he gave up four early runs and had to really fight for it. Um, you know, and the, the middle game was, what was it? 13, nine. So this offense is, has, you know, took advantage of what we talked about, some windy conditions, uh, the last couple of days and were able to, to put some runs on the board. And they're kind of the positive spin of where Clemson is, where I just read off a bunch of Clemson hitters that are having big years and said, if you'd have given me that, I would have taken it and assumed they were going to be excellent offensively. 
Maryland is the positive spin of that where their best guys are Troy Scheffler and Luke Schleiger and Nick LaRusso, you know, and, and Bubba Aline, who's having a career year. Um, it's not Matt Shaw or Maxwell Costas or Bobby's Marslack that are th- the guys in this offense. But the positive spin of that is that those three guys are having pretty good years too. It's not that they're struggling on the same degree that we talked about with the Caden Grice. So what has resulted is that the Maryland offense, I think, is is really formidable too. And is kind of the overlooked piece of this puzzle because there's been so much focus on Maryland pitching, which is deserved. But I think the more interesting piece of the pitching puzzle, at least in this series for Maryland, was that they just had more bullpen depth than Illinois. And, and that really showed because when when things kind of got ugly there, Maryland was able to just just get more outs than Illinois was. And so I think that was the that that was ultimately the difference there. Maryland has an RPI of 24. Uh, they are the one team that looks safe here uh, in the Big Ten uh, tournament picture. Rutgers trashed their RPI uh, last week. It's 54. Uh, Illinois, 69. Iowa, 57. Michigan, 79. One of those other teams is going to the tournament. Like If we say Maryland's in, one of those other four teams is going. Maybe two of them. I don't know who it's going to be. I, I throwing my hands up on this one. Michigan uh, won a series against Ohio State, uh, significant rivalry series win. They needed a comeback to win on Friday. They were down to their last strike. Uh, they got it done in extra innings. They won pretty handily on Saturday, and then Ohio State came back on Sunday. I don't want to say that that feels like a missed opportunity for Michigan. Um, Ohio State is three and 10 in conference play. Like they're right there at the bottom of the standings with Michigan state and Minnesota, but it's a rivalry. Ohio state played them really tight. Um, it's hard for me to sit here and say Michigan should have swept that, but it would have been really nice for Michigan in terms of bolstering their resume and, and all the rest of that. I, uh, I don't know, Joe, what, who, what, what I ask you later today or tomorrow, who, uh, who, who is the second Big Ten team that should be put in the projected field of 64? What, am, what are you going to answer? I have to answer now. I can't just wait until you send me that <laughs> Slack message and I like kind of him and haw about it for a couple hours. Yeah, um, that's one that you're going to pretend like you're going to come back three hours later. Oh, I, I don't know how I missed I just, this one. I just, just now saw this message. Sorry. It's not that I've been like clicking through their schedules for the last 90 minutes. Um, boy, I don't. I really don't know. Like, I don't, I, I like Illinois' path. I just don't think uh, there RPI will be some 69 RP- is a problem. And yeah. the path is so easy that they're almost have to run the table to not impugn their RPI further. Yeah, hundred percent. Like there's going to be some RPI leniency here. It's the big 10. We understand that, but not that much leniency. Right. So, um, has Iowa snuck in the back door here? I mean, I, that's kind of where I'm headed. You know, Iowa <laughs> has a series win against Rutgers. They have the series win against Michigan. They won a game against Texas Tech. They split an abbreviated series. Like they have some decent non-conference things. Like they have the third best RPI on the board here. Like maybe it's Iowa. I mean, I, yeah. I'm kind of inclined to say that anyway. I was high on Iowa coming into the year, but. I mean, this would be, it would be kind of fitting that Iowa is the, uh, so often the team that is like in perfect position, I guess there's still time, but perfect position as the month of May starts, you know, they're, they're kind of in, in the catbird seat and they fall off. Whereas this year they've had to be, they've kind of been working towards it as they approach that, that early May spot. So that would be a little bit, 
a little bit different there. Now, um, if you if you do lift the hood on Iowa's remaining mm-hmm. schedule, though, um, they don't. It, it, it's not good. They're they're in a similar position to Illinois that they're really going to have to run run up a bunch yeah. of wins here. Well, maybe that's where the uh, you know the the twelve spots in RPI right now comes into play, where it's like Iowa finishes closer to fifty and Illinois is closer to sixty, and that ends up being a little bit of a a difference there. I had one one quick thought uh, on the Big Ten too. It's uh, let me let me count here: one, two, three, four, five, six. Seven. Okay, so if the season ended today glad it doesn't the season ended today the big 10 tournament would include rutgers northwestern and penn state which you know in the last i don't know five or six years i think there's been like one or two total appearances for that group and i think they've mostly been northwestern if not exclusively northwestern (laughs) i don't remember the last time penn state's been to the big 10 tournament um made it once but regardless like uh, just a can, a small, small handful of Big Ten tournament appearances for that group of three teams over the last at least half decade, and then not making the tournament would be Minnesota, Ohio State, and Indiana. And oh, by the way, Nebraska is basically hanging on by a thread of, of missing it as well because um, they just. I kept thinking that would be the team that oh they're going to tank their RPI and they're going to go they're going to get it together just in time to really kind of hose the Big 10 because they're going to win enough games to to script somebody's season and nope they just they have really just not gotten it together this season. Now the Big 10 has uh five teams that are above 500 Northwestern is at 500 and uh the rest of them uh not so much not so much. I guess six teams with overall 500 record above 500 records. Uh, Purdue is above 500, though they are below 500 in uh, in Big Ten play. So that's the Big Ten. Clearly, we're very excited about it this year. Uh, but it is it is going to be an exciting race. I am just right now exasperated uh, that I cannot figure this league out for the life of me, and also that it just feels like behind Maryland, there's not much. Uh, no, nobody has has leapt up and said, yes, we are a good baseball team. And like, we are prepared to go out and play well in regionals. Like last year for as much as, as, as bad as the big 10 got it, Nebraska and Maryland both made regional finals. I mean, I can see Maryland back in a regional final this year. I don't know who else is making it that far. I, yeah, I got to ask on, um, and I'm not being coy. I, I truly don't remember like what radio or podcast interview I was doing, but it was big 10 centric. And I got asked like there's and this is like six weeks ago. I mean, conference play had maybe started in the Big Ten, but maybe maybe not even. And I got kind of asked like, yeah, there's not a lot of juice in the Big Ten this year. Like, is that? And basically, the question was trying to tie that to like last year, just the bad PR and like that the Big Ten just played conference only. And I don't think those two things are related. But what I because like how could they really be? But I will say it is a kind of a bad look for the conference to have whether you agreed or disagree with the move to do what they did last year, scheduling wise. And then this year come back and just, they've kind of as a conference, like, I don't want to be dramatic about it, but have kind of laid an egg uh, as far as the season goes. And that's just back to back. That's just not a great look for the league. I mean, I feel like this is the worst big 10 season in a decade. Yeah. I mean that I, I believe it. Like it's just, there's just not a lot of juice there on an individual player level there. Like I wrote about in three strikes last week that it was refreshing to have Maryland and Illinois play each other. Cause it felt like we still hadn't had a marquee big 10 series this season. Um, yeah. It's just been uh, it's just been a tough year and those are, those are going to happen. And the key is 
does 2023 look any different? So, yeah, I mean, Clark Elliott is going to get drafted pretty well this year from, from Michigan. And after that, I don't know who the next player from this league is that's going to get drafted is like, it's, it's, it's not going to be a good draft year. It, as it's shaking out now, it doesn't look great for the postseason picture. Like they're just, it doesn't look great. Um, and that is deeply unfortunate. Obviously Joe and I both have strong Midwestern ties and would love nothing more than to say great things about the big 10. It's just, it's hard this year. Uh, okay, let's uh, let's move on to something that I actually can say good things about, Joe, and uh, that is that there were two perfect games this weekend. We hadn't had a perfect game yet this year. This weekend featured two, both were seven inning varieties. Grambling State's Shamar Page uh, threw one on Friday in a win against Alcorn State, and then Fairfield's Jake Novilio uh, threw one against St. Peter's. Uh, so in addition to Vanderbilt's uh, no-hitter, two perfect games this weekend. Uh, I think those are like 35 and 36 all time. Uh, both of the seven-inning variety, but still pretty impressive. Uh, and congratulations to, uh, to Shamar and to Jake. Uh, and Big, then on uh, both- the- right, Go ahead, Joe. That was a, sorry about that delay. That was me uh, struggling with the mute button again. It happens about once a podcast where like, I miss it. I try to click it and I miss it. And then I have to go back and, uh, but yeah, both guys Jake Noviello is a guy who's had a lot of success at Fairfield's a veteran guy there. And I, you know, Shamar page is, is having a really nice year. And I believe, uh, was it Louisiana tech before That's correct. he got to Grambling? Yeah. So like a couple of guys that have track Brad record and talent and yeah. So like uh, good, good for them both. Like not that anybody who's just like a pop-up, like <laughs> random, perfect game is not worth celebrating but those are two guys that have both have track record and have both been at this a while so uh kudos to them for that shamar actually is a uh, two-way player as well he doesn't hit when he's uh he's pitching but he hits the rest of the time and he's uh he's hitting quite well for uh for grambling as well in addition to serving as their ace uh okay on the last note for us here today is sad one uh, on Saturday, Gonzaga associate head coach Danny Evans died uh, after about a year-long battle with melanoma. Uh, he has absolutely been instrumental to Gonzaga's success over the years. He's been there for 19, had been there for 19 years as an assistant. He played at Gonzaga. Um, his fingerprints are all over the, the team this year that is now ranked 11th in the country. That's the highest ever for Gonzaga. Um, he hasn't been in the dugout this year due to the sickness, but, uh, you know, as, as the lead recruiter and as, uh, Mark Makoff's lead assistant, uh, anything that this Gonzaga team looks like has a lot to do with what Danny Evans did, uh, for the team. He was 41 and, uh, very much beloved in the, in the coaching community. So our thoughts and prayers, uh, definitely with Gonzaga and with, uh, with his family. No doubt. Rest in peace, coach. Uh, just tough too much, much, much too young. Uh, cancer sucks. You know, we, we fortunately, unfortunately we all know that all, all too well, but you're right. His, his, his fingerprints are all over this team that, that could be enjoying. And certainly by some measures has already enjoyed the, the best season in, in Gonzaga baseball history. And, and so certainly, um, certainly those guys are going to want to do something special for him this season. All right. Uh, on that note, we are going to wrap up the podcast today. Um, thank you all for, for listening. Uh, hopefully you all uh, enjoyed this weekend of college baseball. We've got a few more regular season weekends, definitely getting down to the stretch run here, though. 
Uh, and so with that, remember, you can find all the content over at BaseballAmerica.com. You can follow me and Joe on Twitter. I'm at Ted Cahill. Joe is at Joe Healy BA. And we come at you twice a week here on the podcast. So subscribe to the Baseball America podcast on your favorite podcasting app, be that Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts, hit that subscribe, hit that follow button. Uh, and we come come at you twice a week during the season on Monday, recapping the weekend that was and on Thursday, previewing the weekend to come. So we'll be back here on Thursday uh, to preview week 11. Uh, it's a really fun one. Got a top 10 series uh, with Virginia and Virginia Tech. Mentioned that Oklahoma State, Texas series as well. Tennessee and Auburn. There's a lot going on this weekend. Uh, should be another great weekend of college baseball. So until then, uh, I've been, I'm, I'm Teddy. He's Joe. We'll talk to you next time.